3: up, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota and Danny Abdel-Jabbar. What's up, brother? How are you?
0: Chilling, man. As per usual. Let me uh, start by saying happy birthday, man. Thanks for being a trooper and uh, deciding to record on your birthday.
3: Thanks. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's I'm a grown man, and once you get older, your birthdays become a little less special, so you don't need to really plan out some some party or special event. <laughs> we just ordered. I mean, I can't really do much anyway. I got the uh, I got the China flu. Oh, jeez.
0: Hope you're doing okay. I got
3: the China flu. I'm doing okay. It's um, about time I got it. It's been two years of many close situations. <laughs> I really thought I was I was uh, of the immune because I've I mean I've been around a lot of people who've had it and. I've been to events where there have been outbreaks. So I figured at this point, it's been two years. I just wasn't going to get it. <laughs> and then finally, I was at a wedding two weekends, or last weekend I was at a wedding, and there was a COVID outbreak. And uh, a couple days later, when I found out that there was a COVID outbreak, I took a test. And Well, first, my Allison, she called me up while she was at work she was, and she was freaking out she's like I have covid and it was a big deal because her bridal shower was this weekend so she oh, had to shit. cancel it ah oh, that sucks so i was like i was like fuck i bet i have it too <laughs> so i took the test cuz i woke up earlier that day and my throat was sore so i was I, I knew it i knew it right when she said that so i i tested positive and i've been in quarantine ever since I have to say, it's worse than I thought it was gonna be. Yeah, I thought it was gonna be just like nothing. That was my expectation.
0: Well, I'm glad that you're still alive.
3: (laughs) Because I figured when I first tested positive, when I first tested positive, I was uh, my attitude was okay. I'm probably there's like no chance I'm gonna have symptoms. It's just gonna be like whatever. I'm gonna quarantine so I don't get anyone else COVID or the coof. And um, you know, that will be that, but I did get at least a couple of symptoms as far as like uh fever and um like tight chest, all that shit. Al lost her smell and her um Oh, that's scary. Her taste. She lost her senses. I can't smell Um, so I don't know what version of the COOF we got, if it's like the older version or if it's the Omicron or what symptoms are which but whatever i'm still alive don't worry about me (laughs) all right man it's just the flu i will tell you i've had the flu a couple times since we started the show my flus were a lot worse than this my flus were 10 times worse there was a flu i got right before covid and everyone tells me it was covid but i'm at least the flu for me was worse than uh, a lot worse than the covid yeah I'm, i'm glad that you're you know not in a hospital somewhere so that's all i gotta say about that i appreciate that no i'm good i'm getting better um i'm able to perform my podcast responsibilities and uh record another episode and on today's show we are and if i if i mess up anything today i will be using covid as a deflection (laughs) or as an excuse for screwing up the covid brain fog so if i get anything wrong it was the covid brain fog or if I misspeak, or if I use a lot of ums and uh, buts and, and uh, filler words, it will be because of the COVID brain fog. And uh, I'm gonna use that same excuse too even though I don't have it. <laughs> okay, so today we're gonna talk about Lend-Lease. That's been in the news a lot, and Congress, ha- or, yeah, Congress has decided to renew the Lend-Lease Act, so we figured we'd just talk about the history of the Lend-Lease Act and do kind of a classic history episode and, and try to compare it to what's going on today. Uh, does that sound interesting? Yes, it does. All right, cool. So we'll get right into it. So what is Lend-Lease? So Lend-Lease is one of those topics that is really up to dispute on how much it impacted World War II, the war effort during World War II, or if it impacted it at at all. A lot of people say that the USSR would have lost World War II or without the Lindley's. And then some say it just uh, reduced the time of the war by a couple of years. Now, I mean, I'm not really sure. It's so much. This is one of those topics of, uh, you know, the financial aid. We're talking about the financial aid that the United States gave. Um, its allied uh, partners during World War II. That's known as as lend-lease, or um, you know, this aspect that we're going to talk about is known as lend-lease. And it's it what it was. It was when the U.S. passed um, the, the lend-lease was a U.S. passed law on in March of 1941 that provided financial assistance for governments fighting Nazi Germany. And then it eventually extended to the governments fighting uh, Japan. So it extended to China as well. started off with Great Britain and, and the European powers or the European partners and then to China. And it was uh, formally known as an act to further the defense of the United States. Now, to give you some background, when World War II started in Europe... American neutrality laws stipulated that all sales of war supplies had to be paid for in cash and then shipped in foreign vessels. Cash and carry. Well, by... Exactly. So, by July 1940, France had surrendered and and Britain told the the American government secretly that it was going to be impossible for them to continue to pay cash indefinitely. So... Lend-Lease was was thought up by the U.S. government after the British had ran out of money. Now, after the November election, the British situation was made public, and FDR requested uh, Congress to pass an act that gave him power to lend war supplies to countries. And um, I quote um, FDR: "Quotes." whose defense is vital to the United States. So FDR, he he delivers a speech where he said something along the lines of, you know, if our neighbor's house catches fire, we have to give him our, you know, our garden hose and with it, he can put out his fire or something like that. You know, he uses that analogy of putting out your, you know, fire before it gets too crazy. Which is also
0: kind of a joke and, uh, too,
3: because like it, it the the fire was like a four alarm fire and we're offering a garden hose. <laughs> yeah, a garden hose, right? <laughs> when our partners need a squirt gun, we're gonna give them a squirt gun. <laughs> um, I love how my Alex Jones voice is just my impression for everyone yeah. now. <laughs> Al- FDR impression. Oh well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got the documents gotta right to pass here. Pass
1: <laughs> Lindley's The British need money. We gotta pass Lindley's <laughs> for the
3: Allies. <laughs> he, he basically says, "Yeah, the fire is gonna extend to you know our our neighborhood." now um the Lin lease included you know everything that could be used for the war so raw materials semi-finished goods uh military equipment food and after it ended unused supplies were supposed to be returned in reality very little equipment was ever returned yeah i mean how how much aid did we end up giving them in total or how much aid did we give out so the the total aid provided under this law exceeded fifty billion dollars between 1941 and, and 1948. Um, I don't is that think, 1941 money or today money? No, that's that's 1941 money. So I don't know what the comparison is uh, off the top of my head. Off the top of my head, I don't know what the inflation uh, transfer is, but it's many times over. I'm sure someone will look this up right now. I can look for it.
0: One dollar is worth nineteen dollars and sixty-seven cents today, from nineteen forty-one to today. So, rough math: fifty billion times you know nineteen dollars and sixty-seven cents
3: comes to about nine hundred and eighty-three billion dollars. Okay, that's a lot of money. A lot of money. (laughs) But hey, it was an expensive war. So Roosevelt declared openly that the USSR would have priority in it. Which actually caused tension between Chiang Kai shek and Britain because they thought their support would be taken by the Soviets. So, they, you know, China and Britain thought that, or they feared that some of the support from the Soviet Union or to the Soviet Union would be allocated from them. But I mean, the reality was that the British received by far the most. So, in in all, and I have the statistics right here. <clears throat> Sorry if my my voice is crackling, damn China flu. In all, thirty one point four billion went to the UK, eleven point three billion went to the Soviet Union, three point two billion went to France, one point six billion to China, and the remaining two point six billion went to other allies. Now, what's interesting is that if you look at like a majority of American surveys in the summer of 1941, they were against helping the Soviets. And one of the main reasons was, and this was one of the great fears, and this is what I would have thought back in those days too, that the Soviets would lose anyway. And all those weapons would be deli- that were delivered to the Soviet Union would end up in German hands, which is entirely understandable because in 1941, the Soviets were losing entire armies on a regular basis during the first year of the war. You know, the Soviets in 1941, the Soviets lost the the 16th, the 19th, and the 20th armies when they were circled, encircled, and destroyed at the Battle of Smolensk, and then they lost the 6th and the 12th armies. It's about 100,000 casualties, and just the Battle of Uman. And also the Nazis were at Leningrad at this time. So, I mean, any observer of the war, I mean, I would have probably thought that the Soviet Union would implode, but they didn't. So, you know, public opinion starts to change because the Russians start hanging around and not imploding, especially after France fell. And, um, you know, all this led to a change in attitude both among the West and, you know, they were, you know, the Soviet unions eventually included in the land lease program in in November of
0: 1941. I think it's pretty interesting that you're saying like the,
3: the political opinion or at least the the running opinion was
0: was that the Russians weren't going to win. And so giving a bunch of military equipment resources and stuff to them was just kind of like a dumb idea because it would just go to the Nazis. They start hanging around, right? And they're not, losing so then we decide, like all right let's go for it because they didn't fall france fell and we decided to give it a shot so i guess the question is because we know what how the history ends on this one they they didn't lose they won we won really so how much did this lend lease impact
3: the war in the east i don't really think there's a strong consensus on this um it's I think it's it's one of those like historical debates because um, I guess first and foremost, Lindley started out really slow, and yeah, the Soviet Union Just as
0: all government programs do. <laughs> yeah, well, the
3: Soviet Union didn't see the immediate um, bonuses or, or or um you know advantages of having Lindleys, uh, especially in 1941. And a lot of, you know, different historians will place when the Soviet Union changed the tides of the war. Some historians, uh, you know, a common point is Stalingrad, you know, that's where, where I, I think that's probably the most common point where people will, will where, where uh, you know, World War II historians or just World War II buffs in general will be like, okay, that's when the tide changed in the war and the Germans started losing. Other people say that the Germans started losing that winter um, in 1941, 1942, when they didn't reach, when they weren't able to reach Moscow. And and then others will say that the Germans started losing the war as soon as it started because they just never could have won that war to begin with. Other people will put that changing point into Battle of uh, Kursk. You know, it's just, it depends on where you put the, the turning point of the war. I think Stalingrad is where a lot of people put it, but I mean, that's, you know, so
0: the, I mean, a lot a lot of those turning points fall after the Lind Lease program. So
3: like, well, the Lind Lease program was was effective throughout the war. So it, it got it got going. It, it really started to get going in 1943, 1944, After a lot of these key turning points already happened in the war. I see. That's why there's gotcha. that's why there's really no consensus. Um, so why did
0: it take so long to like start up? I mean, if we if we you know. Launched the program in like late November 41 Why did it take two years
3: to get started? Well, the main problem was delivery routes to the Soviet Union Because how do you bring all these materials to the Soviet Union from America? And, you know, there were The main routes were um, Across the North Atlantic Ocean So like around, through uh, You know, around Norway Where the Germans had a naval base and it was riddled with submarines, so there was an event. Yeah, that's not a good idea. Yeah, there, <laughs> there was a um, you know a, a, a catastrophe really uh, called the Convoy uh, Convoy PQ17, where the Germans sank 24 of 35 Allied ships in this convoy in the Arctic Ocean. So convoys were just being obliterated. Jesus, uh, transferring uh, lend-lease uh, materials from the United States to, and Britain, from from the U.S. and Britain um, to the Soviet Union. So they had to find an alternative route. And that alternative route was was through Iran. Mm. Funny enough, that was like where the, you know, the Allies decided would be the safest passage would be through the Middle East, through the Persian Gulf, through Iran. Because you would think the Pacific would be it, but... You couldn't really go through the Pacific either because there were all these different obstacles with the Japanese. Um, You know the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, and the Japanese weren't at war yet. They didn't. The Soviet Union didn't declare war on the Japanese until 1945, until the ending of the war, really. But um, you know those would be U.S. and British ships who were at war with the Japanese. So it it just wouldn't it wouldn't be able to it, it, that they couldn't go through that way uh, that route either now um, so Iran is is uh, kind of settled as the main place and let, let's actually put a pen on this because I want to outline some context to to pull this back you know one of the fronts that is completely forgotten during World War II is is the Persian Gulf front. It, it, it's forgotten because there weren't really too many casualties and that much heavy fighting during in this front. But regardless, the theater was extremely important because of the, the delivery of war materials to the Soviet Union. And I think when it peaked, the theater had approximately around 65,000 U.S. civilians and 30,000 uh, you know soldiers stationed there. However, when the U.S. Army began deploying troops to Iran, American policymakers, um, you know, and, and the general public really had no knowledge of that region. Like, um, you know, in the Middle East and, and uh, the Middle Eastern countries, like the Arab states and and Iran, the, the only people who really had knowledge of those regions in the early 20th century were either people who did business there. Most of the, a lot of that business was oil and, um, you know, religious missions and things like that. They're the only people who really had, and that goes for like a, a lot of parts in the world. You know, the people who mainly had knowledge of, of China in the 20th century were business people and, and missionaries. because they're the people who had, who, um, uh, you know, extended and, um, extended out into the world we didn't really have this robust academic and, and uh, kind of a diplomatic establishment that had all these different policies in all these different parts of the world in this time of the you know of our history so it was like a whole new thing you know we were, the US wasn't the US had engaged in imperial escapades but you know it wasn't the British Empire at this point. Now, um, I think the War Department didn't even have maps of Persia when the, the, the decision was made to move into the country. And, um, you know, the State Department's Division of Near Eastern Affairs had like a staff of 13 people. And I don't think, I, I think only three of them were able to speak any languages in Iran. Britain of course had ruled Iraq as a colony until 1932 and British troops were there until 1937 when they, when they left but a rebel government in Iraq that was seen as pro-axis led to the British reoccupation of Iraq in May 1941 because, um, you know, remember World War II, Iraqi oil was very important to the British war effort. So, Mm -hmm. right after the British occupation of Iraq and the German invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941, the British and the Soviets um, occupied Iran to secure a route for supplies to the Soviet Union from lend-lease. So, they basically divided the country in half which is really funny because during world war one there was an exact plan to do this so um when they were negotiating Sykes-Picot between the British and the French there was a secret deal going on at the same time with the British and the Russians on what to do with uh with with the Persian Empire at the time and they what they were going to do is that they were going to divide Persia from the north, you know, modern day Iran from the north and the south. And um, when that was over, when well, when the Soviet Union came to power and the uh, you know the czarist government fell, the Soviet Union backed out of the deal. They were like, we're not, we're not. We don't believe in this sort of thing, this imperialism that you're engaged in. We're not doing this. But later on, you know, the Soviet Union obviously expands and and does become like an imperial country. And um, I guess in their mind was for for national security interest. But nevertheless, this this happens during World War II. The joint British-Russian plans to divide the country. And, um, you know, Iran was officially neutral during the war. Its monarch, uh, you know, Reza Shah Pavla, he was friendly towards the, the Axis powers. So, or at least he didn't condemn them enough. So, he was deposed during, you know, the subsequent occupation. And then he was replaced by his son, Mohammad Reza Shah Pavla, who is a.k.a. the Shah of Iran, Oh, the Shah. Yeah. <laughs> so that guy, that's how, that's how the Shah f- comes to power first. You got the Shah that, you know, kind of, it, that's so impactful of, of uh, it was so important to the U S foreign policy in the Middle East from the fifties to the seventies. He comes to power, uh, because of world war II, And then after, after world war II, the, um, you know, the, the Iranians, they elect their own government and then the CIA overthrows them and and puts puts the Shah back in power. <laughs> yeah. And the Shah is, you know, he's seen as a puppet because he is a puppet. Now, um, I guess a treaty was signed and it's, I have a quote from a historian, T.H. Vale Motor, called... Well he calls this the occupation which has officially not the occupation was which has officially not an occupation, making Iran a passive, powerless, and resentful partner of the Allies. So, I mean this this kind of kicks off um, you know, a whole foreign policy debacle that, you know, we're still living with, with now. Um, you know with with, with Iran. And the U.S. having hostile relations, but um, they, they go back to World War II. The Americans began arriving during the fall of 1942 at the behest of the British. And at this point, you know, Britain was overextended in India um, in fighting the war. They needed they needed the U.S. to secure Iran, and uh, you know, the Soviet Union was already fighting for its very existence on the Eastern Front, so they didn't really have troops to spare. So an agreement was hammered out in which the Americans would take over British control and responsibility of the, of the trans-Iranian railway and uh, truck transport of the lend lease supplies to Russia. And uh, you know, the handover responsibility occurred in November of 1942. Uh, it was Major General uh, Donald Connolly who was put in charge of what would become the Persian Gulf Command. And then this, this command eventually totaled 30,000 troops. And then um, you know the Persian Gulf command, you know their job was pretty simple. it was to offload weapons and supplies from Iranian ports and then they had to assemble them because you know they, they weren't sending them fully assembled stuff from the US. They had to assemble them in Iran and then after they assembled them they would um, you know either fly or transport this stuff from uh, you know by truck or, or by by uh, railroad and they would, they would send everything up north. So, you know, they actually kind of modernize Iran in a large way because they have to make all these factories and all these modern ports to facilitate the transportation of, of uh, cargo and weapons and supplies from the United States to Russia at the same time. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they had to make everything and assemble everything in, in Iran, and, uh, you know, ultimately they deliver more than 5 million tons of weapons and supplies to the Soviet Union from Iran. Most people listening to this will be familiar enough to know that, you know, the major battle, the major war, the major the, the most devastating and largest battles of the war, they were all in the eastern front of World War II. 80% of the more than 5 million man German military Um, You know, 80% of their deaths occurred in the Eastern Front. And, you know, during that time period, the Red Army went through a pretty radical transformation. Because just think about it, before the war, the military was was decimated by the the Stalin purges. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, they were losing entire armies in the first year of the war. But as the war progressed, you know, the Red Army arguably becomes the greatest military in the world. So the question is, how much is due to Lend-Lease? And, you know, take t- again, take my opinion with, with a grain of salt. Um, you know, there's plenty of people who know a lot more about World War II than I do. But, you know, I was always under the impression that Lend-Lease just shortened the war because, um, you know, Lend-Lease didn't really impact anything until later until after 1942 um after the soviets had already won stalingrad but um you know regardless you know let's look at the allies supplied what what the allies supplied to the soviets um i pulled this from an article from the national interest called lend lease helped win world war ii but not on the eastern front by Robert Beckhusen. And it just outlines pretty much everything that the Allies supplied the Soviet Union during the war. And the Allies supplied more than 12,000 tanks to the Soviet Union, 5,000 came from the UK and Canada and included the Valentine, Churchill, Matilda tanks. And then the US for its part supplied nearly 1400 M3 Lee tanks and more than 4000 M4 Shermans. Now these numbers were small in comparison to the tens of thousands of T34s produced during the war. You know the T34 tanks?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean these these tanks were pretty beast. I think we've we've talked about this in some prior episodes and as a matter of fact, I think this was one of our first episodes when we talked about like, you know, Sherman tanks in general. And primarily that episode was focused more around like Sherman tanks versus like Panzers. But we definitely talked about the T-34s and just like in in short, I mean, these like like you said, they, they built tens of thousands of these and they're pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I think what was interesting uh, that I don't think we've mentioned on the show is that the suspension, the Christie suspension, uh, that they run on was basically inherited from a you know a design of, a, of an American uh, who built uh, these M1928 tanks um, which they then turned around and sold them to the Red Army without turrets of course and they <laughs> they like put it down on paper as like farm tractors which is funny and they basically were able to like I guess reverse engineer it and you know figure out how to make some pretty good suspension, but they they really put a spin on it that was pretty awesome. I mean, it had a really high sloped armor that was really good against anti-tank weapons. So basically when you get hit on head on, they just kind of deflect rather than just totally nailing you. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're, they're relatively quick, very, you know, um, strongly armored and they just made a shit ton of them too. You know, they made really, really good tanks. Let's just put it that way. Um, it definitely way better than, than some of the tanks that they were getting, through the Lend-Lease programs like the, you know, the Valentines and the Matildas, you know, from, from Britain, which had really small turrets and underpowered cannons. And, you know, I, I think they, they probably weren't very, um, this is actually hard, hard to say. They might've been outmatched in tanked on tank combat with German Panzers, but so were the Shermans and, you know, just a shit ton of Shermans were able to overwhelm a bunch of,
1: Actually, a lot. So sign
4: up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary.
0: DTW, you prohibited by loss. Terms and conditions 18 plus.
4: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with Nerd Wallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Yeah, well, another problem with the Sherman was that the, the, um, it had narrow treads and it made it less mobile yeah. in the mud. Um, and then Shermans also consumed a lot of fuel, which was also in not very high supply. <laughs> yeah, but um, it um, it's funny because planners had standardized the width of the of the Sherman treads in the war to ensure that Shermans would fit into ocean transports when they when they would uh you know across when they would be sent to supply uh, the British and the Soviets and you know that aspect of the of the treads made them um you know undesirable to a lot of Soviet tank operators yeah cuz they were so narrow yeah yeah um but <clears throat> so yeah i mean the, the soviets had their own tanks that were really good um uh, you know especially the T34 so a lot of the us ta- the the western tanks you know i mean they were definitely used but it's hard to really grade the impact that they had during the war, or at least, you know, I, I personally can't. Um, so, and then there was also the aircraft as well that was sent over, and, um, you know, what's interesting is that during World War II, the Western allies in the Soviet Union, they had pretty different approaches to air power during the war. Uh, you know, the West relied more on you know, strategic bombing deep into the Axis territory, mm-hmm you know, bombing like oil fields in Romania and bombing cities and, and uh, you know, not... The Soviet Union, they preferred aircraft suited towards striking targets on the battlefield. So um, I'm going to quote from this article. The armored, um, was it Iushin? Ilyushin, Yeah, the armored Iushin ground attack plane embodied this different concept and the Soviets produced more than 36,000 during the war more than any other military aircraft in history. The Soviets were thus disappointed in the 4,700 US P-39 Air Cobras, although they were effective and 3,000 British Hawker Hurricanes supplied under Lend-Lease. Far more consequential were the thousands of Western transport aircraft, which bolstered the Red Army's logistical backbone and the A-20 Havoc light bombers, which contributed to the Soviets' uh, offensive maneuvers.
0: You know it's interesting that you point this out. You know because I, I didn't I didn't dive too deeply into the aircraft this time around for uh, the lend-lease, but one thing that I did come across that's related to aircraft is that a lot of the Soviet um, aircraft flew on lower octane fuel than you know like American or British um, air, uh, like aircraft, and what was pretty important about that was that we would ship over super high octane fuel as part of the Lemleys, like part of the, the other shit that we would send over. And they would cut our fuel with their fuel to make lower octane fuel that can run their planes. So while the planes that we sent over might not have been the ones that they wanted, they certainly used our planes. The fuel that we were providing, the planes that they did use a lot, like the Elysian tw- uh, twos, those ground attack planes, you know, they can't fly without fuel. And we certainly were giving them a shit ton of it, and since we were sending really high octane stuff, they're able to like kind of spread that out and make that last longer versus the planes that we were sending over that were running on high octane fuels, which would consumed more. So, you know, it's somewhat related in that respect. It, the, you know, aircraft were definitely super important during World War II, uh, and I think that you can't you can't under Underwrite the the contributions that the Lindley's program had for aircraft, at least from the fuel perspective.
3: Yeah, I mean, besides aircraft and besides um, tanks, you know, there's there was everything else that was a, the most significant chunk of of uh, Lindley's. So you know, things like trucks, fuel, clothing, guns, ammunition. You know, metals, uh, radios. Explosives. Yeah, uh, industrial equipment. You know, everything that would, you know, soften the wars below to the Soviet Union's industrial and agriculture base.
0: Yeah, which is why it makes kind of the the topic of like, did Lend-Lease help the Soviet Union win the war or not? It makes it kind of complicated because... You know, like we've pointed out, the Soviets had a wide range of weapons that were really good for you know, use on the
3: Eastern Front. It's kind of, and just one comparison. It's kind of hard to measure the contribution of of U.S. weapons right now in Ukraine because a lot of the stuff that the Ukrainians are using are so you know are stuff that's uh, you know made in Ukrainian factories and uh, you know from the Soviet Union that they've modified, like the Neptune missiles. There, you they're not American missiles. No, they're, they're based on Russian missiles. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, but, but I
0: think w- what makes it kind of difficult to have this, you know, like to, to say definitively whether or not the lend program actually made a, a difference is just because there's so many factors involved. Right. Um, you know, we talked about T-34s, we talked about submachine guns, you know, uh, something that we didn't talk too much about that definitely has an impact, but you know, hard to measure how that impact was. Right. They, So they didn't like our tanks or their tanks were better, but their tanks really sucked because they had really bad radios. You know, the Soviet Union, their industry was lacking in two really big places that I want to talk about. One of them is radio and the other one is trucks. And this is something the U.S. did really, really well in. On the point of radios, uh, the radios for the tanks were you know, in the Soviet Union were very, very complicated and they failed like a lot. And when they did fail, it was actually super hard for them to get back up and running, you know, and this is, you know, I guess where we would pin the start of modern warfare and, and, you know, communication is everything. So if you can't talk and communicate among, you know, the other tank operators, it's kind of hard to, to maneuver. And so once the Lend-Lease was approved and they started getting their, you know, getting the U.S. radios, these tank operators immediately start noticing how bad their own units were, and there's like a lot of, uh, a lot of people that write about that, and you know to compensate for the lack of like quality in certain things like radios and trucks, the Soviet Union needed to produce huge amounts of lower quality alternatives, you know, to these imports, which was totally unfeasible because they're, you know. There was a lot of questions about the Soviet Union's economy in the first place while this was happening, and Lend-Lease, in, in many ways, I think, kind of helped stabilize the economy. You know, the, the Russian economy collapsed during World War One, and there were projections already during World War II that the Soviet Union was, you know, at risk of collapse. Now, exactly when it would collapse was obviously impossible to know. It was anyone's guess, but I think Definitely Lend-Lease helped to stave it off because, you know, to your point, you know, to your reading of it, you know, maybe it helped, you know, save a couple of years on the war. But, you know, the imports alone from this Lend-Lease program were close to 5% of the Soviet Union's gross national product. That's a lot. That's a lot. In my mind, at least, that this helped the Soviet Union to allocate those resources that they would have been using towards creating inferior radios as an example elsewhere, up to and including for, you know, like civilian use. But one of the biggest ones, in my opinion, that I read a lot about was trucks. Trucks don't sound sexy. I mean, it's not like a tank or an airplane, but they had a very significant impact um on the Eastern Front. And you know, the the reason why is because unless the Soviet Union was able to completely capture like a railway system, like an enemy railway system. And they'd have to completely capture it totally intact, by the way, right? There was no no way to move troops and material en masse forward into enemy territory other than trucks, right? It's a little difficult for you to capture an enemy railway system, you know, for the most part. If the enemy feels like they're going to be overtaken, they just blow it up. So these trucks become really vital for this Eastern front and, and US trucks were super high quality, both, you know, in 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 quantity, the sheer numbers of the imports made, I think a huge impact. I read that, that Studebakers, one of the types of trucks that they sent over, carried 50% more tonnage on average versus similar Soviet Union trucks. And they were considered to be better and they definitely lasted longer than Soviet Union trucks. So much so that by the end of the war, uh, two out of every three trucks in the Soviet Union were foreign-built, including like 400,000 cargo trucks and 47,000 Willys Jeeps. So, I mean, at the end of the day, the Soviet Union got more trucks from the U.S. than the Germans were able to build for themselves. And kind of understanding that logistics is so important, And we can see this playing out right now during, you know, the Ukraine crisis. Moving shit around is so important. It's not just the guns that you're firing. It's also like, how do you get things to the front line? and How do you move people around quickly? And I think that these trucks definitely enabled the Soviet Union to act more offensively by quickly moving troops and supplies deeper and deeper into Nazi territory. And I think without them, the Soviet Union might still have been able to win, but I just think, like you think, it would have taken much longer and it would have definitely claimed more Russian lives.
3: There's this video on, I'm trying to find it real quick, but there's this video of uh, like old World War II footage of American trucks um, driving through the water and they basically are, they basically turn in, they're, they're amphibious trucks and um, they basically mm-hmm. turn into boats. They're pretty. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty cool video. I forgot, I forgot what truck it is, but I don't know. I'll, I'm gonna try to find that. Uh, but yeah, I'm obviously trucks and all this other stuff is very underrated, even if it's not as sexy as, uh, you know, tanks and artillery and and planes. Now, let's talk about the. Let's let's start comparing this to, uh, you know, modern modern day world. The because we wanted to compare lend-lease of the old day to the I guess the the latest bill that's being voted on right Lendless now lease 2.0 uh lease 2.0 or what HR 7691 Additional Ukraine Supplemental Appropriations Act 2022 So um 40 billion dollars um what's going on here you've read deeper into this bill than I have I've kind of went through the skim to the top but you actually read the entire bill what's
0: going on here so yeah a, a lot um before we get into that though i do want to um i do want to make a distinction and i think it's kind of cool and a good segue from our discussion on lend from before you know when when you brought up the idea to talk about lend lease i was like great that's in the news there's some headlines and shit and i actually made the mistake of thinking the new lend program, which was signed on by uh, President Biden on, on May 9th, was the same as this H.R. 7691, the Additional Supple- um, Ukraine Supplemental Appropriations Act. I don't know why I mistake the two. Uh, I think they just both sounded super similar, um, and I just wasn't paying attention. And so I went down two completely separate rabbit holes, um, but... I want to stick with the Lend-Lease before we talk about that bill that's not yet through the Senate, because a lot of the things you just brought up about Lend-Lease sound interesting in relation to the Lend-Lease of today. So one of the things that jumped out at me was when you were saying that at the time, Russia was losing, or at least it looked like they were going to lose, and even you admitted like if you had lived back then, you probably would have went under the assumption that Russia was going to lose, and the fear was that all those weapons would just end up going to the Nazis. I feel like that's kind of similar right now. I, th- I feel like that's a, a very reasonable um, fear for a lot of people to have right now that we're going to do this lend lease to Ukraine, um, whereby we're just giving a bunch of weapons, highly effective and potentially even, you know, classified ones that could fall under, you know, russian hands or something like that and maybe they reverse engineer them and learn shit about it right obviously we're not going to give them any of the good shit but you kind of get the idea and we're coming off the tail of you know the pull out of afghanistan and seeing the taliban basically scoop up all of our hardware and i think it leaves kind of a bad taste in people's mouths
3: yet you know the the taliban the the, the picture of them um Uh, um, posting a flag the Taliban flag uh, mocking the flags put up in in, um, Iwo Jima yeah but they're like all decked out in our like armor and shit yeah (laughs) Uh, I mean it's a pretty hard image to get out of your head but I think most Americans have forgotten about that by now to be completely honest I I don't think any American most Americans have like a very faint recollection of uh of uh the afghanistan pull out and how yeah just at this point crazy that all was and it's kind of funny because that af those afghanistan episodes last year they kind of like greatly increased our audience volume like yeah, they i did. think they've kind of doubled our audience since uh since then and um I mean, I don't want to get into the full thing. I I mean, you can listen to those episodes, but you know, the Afghanistan war was a complete boondoggle, and the the Afghan army was a giant charade. Like there, you know, there really there wasn't an Afghan army. It was all on paper. Now, the difference is, is that someone like me, after seeing the, you know, the the shit show in Afghanistan kind of expected the same thing to happen in Ukraine, where, you know, all the military aid we gave them would just be, uh, was just gonna be for nothing. I still think it's for nothing, by the way. But, um, at least the Ukrainians are fighting. Like, there's actually an army there. Yeah. And they're, they're, uh, they're, certain units seem to be heavily entrenched and not willing to surrender at all. So I guess in that I mean, regard, they're doing a good job, all things considered. Yeah. You know, so in that regard, they're, they're still, you know, they're not, there's not a ghost army is what I'm trying to say in a long, very long winded way. Yeah. Blame it on the COVID. Yeah. Um, But yeah, they, they exist. So like in this case, if we,
0: we've just signed at lease into action and, and I've been reading a little bit about how people are talking about how uh, or at least the Russian talking point now is that um, we're trying to debt trap the the Ukrainian people by just sending them over a bunch of lone military hardware because you know technically it's a lease and they have to either give it back but you know a lot of them are going to get blown up by Russia so, I,
3: I personally, I don't agree that. with that. I don't think that the U.S. is trying to debt-track them because... Um, I don't either. That's just the... The, the reason don't why, either, why be is because I'm, I'm perfectly willing to believe that the U.S. is not responsible enough to expect loans back or, you know, they, they're they perfectly fine with shitting out money and putting it in a, in a dumpster and lighting it on fire. You know what I mean? Like, they don't yeah. give a fuck. Yeah. Like, they'll just print it. Like, wait... Do they give I mean, shit about the foreign aid this, they give out? We'll, we'll
0: talk about some foreign aid here in a second. And But I, I guess the only thing that I didn't really get too much of a chance to to read up on, and I'm, I was hoping that maybe you had, was after the war. You know, we were doing this Lend-Lease program. Did the Soviet Union and did Britain and other people, did they end up paying us back for that shit?
3: <laughs> um, I, don't think, I don't think the Soviet Union did. So...
0: Yeah, I mean, that kind of further um, solidifies my point that I don't think this is a debt trap. Especially for stuff like bullets. Like, when we're sending bullets or missiles, expendable items, fuel, we're not expecting them to give it back. That shit, it's spent. You know, like, you used it. It's gone. And I don't think it's also reasonable to think of, you know, hey, you just uh, finished up a pretty brutal war. I know you got to rebuild everything, but uh, you owe us billions of dollars for all that shit that you, <laughs> that we lent you. I, I just don't see the US ever, you know, calling that debt. I just feel like it would be, it would be in bad taste, but also just like how, how, <laughs> how do you possibly do that? You know?
3: Well, after the, after, I mean, Ukraine is pretty much a shattered country at this point. It's, it's, um, mm-hmm. I mean, how would they expect them to be able to, I mean, after this war, Ukraine's going to be financially dependent on the West. Mm -hmm. I I mean, at this point, they're going to lose, you know, major industrial zones in the East. And, um, you know, there's so much rebuilding to be done. I, I mean, the country is basically gonna is on the way of turning into a failed state. So I think it's going to be uh, completely financially dependent on the EU and the United States, kind of like how uh, you know Bosnia is right now. Um, so no, I don't, I don't think that there's an expectation for for them to. I mean, what are they gonna pay back the West with agriculture, with wheat, for yeah. the next like? 50 years?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's feasible. All right. My last point on this thing is we saw how at at least, you know, we've made the argument that the land lease program benefited the Soviet Union and to a certain extent contributed to their win. Now, totally different scenario here, right? And Ukraine is an epic underdog in this particular battle. But we have seen how they are able to employ the use of our technology, in particular, like those Javelin missiles, to great effect. So, do you think a Lend-Lease program would help Ukraine, or at the very least, maybe not to win, but at the very least, to hold off the Russians long enough for them to, you know, come to the table with better, you know, um, with a better uh, uh, more leverage,
3: right? I, you know, I don't know. I personally don't think that it will because we spoke about this last week when you were talking about, um, you know, U.S. support. All the bigger stuff, all the heavy weapons that they need, it's going to be really hard to get them to the guys in Donbass who are currently entrenched in the battle And um it most is hard to get stuff to the Soviet Union and we figured it out. Well, most of the stuff that they're they're gonna be able to get things to them, but it's mostly gonna be like, you know, small arms stuff, guns and fuel and javelin javelins, um, you know, the small arrow type stuff. Um not the heavy artillery um, and like the large, you know, pl- I don't
0: know. I I I was I was reading that that you know, M1 Abrams, Bradley
3: armored fighting vehicles, all that shit is on the table for this Lend-Lease. Yeah, and okay. maybe Russia runs out of like missiles and they can't target them on their way. I <laughs> mean that's definitely a possibility. Or yeah, they the Russia runs out of uh uh munitions to target equipment and. You know, I threw out the possibility, the theory that one of the objectives of the U.S. of throwing all this all this support and all these weapons into Western Ukraine was that it would force the Russians to use its munitions to uh, destroy this equipment before it gets to the West, knowing that if they put this, it will right. force the Russians to, you know, use their better missiles and, um, and, and their uh, better equipment to destroy it. So maybe that's a possibility that they they run out of that. Um, and then, I mean, I mean that's something that the U.S. planners could be doing. It's possible, right? If anything's possible. It, it totally is. But
0: maybe we're giving them too much credit. Yeah, maybe no we're idea. giving them too much credit <laughs> and
3: it's just a complete, it's a complete like MIC cash grab, which is also very likely. Maybe it's a little bit of both you know that's how you justify the cash speaking grab of, right speaking of cash
0: grabs now i think that's a really good segue for us to talk about this other thing which is hr 7691 officially known as additional ukraine supplemental appropriations act of 2022 now this is the one the 40 billion dollar one that just passed in the house being held up in the senate i think i think rand paul is the one that's that's holding it up right here but um i read it I actually read the damn bill <laughs> and I went so far as to put it into a spreadsheet because I don't know if you've ever read these bills before, especially appropriations bills, but the way that they write it, I think they're intentionally writing it for you. Not like, like if you're, if you're breezing past it, you're not going to really know how exactly how much money is going to what. Yeah. I've read right? these bills. Like before. They'll show you a little line. I'd, yeah. Yeah. They, they're super annoying.
3: They're, they're meant to be very tedious to read. I think they're purposely. Yeah. Uh, there's not like a line item. It's um. It's not. It's not a spreadsheet. Yeah. I mean, it would <laughs> Let's be. Just it it saves so much time if. I think that's why Congress people don't read them too.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I I agree with you fully. But you
3: think Congress people would have a staff it. member who would just take these out and be like, okay, like uh, go read this bill, put everything important into a spreadsheet. This is why, you know, you're hired on my team to put right this information in a line item so I could easily glance them glance at this and I don't have to spend you know eight hours reading this it'll take me an hour going through the spreadsheet that you prepare for me but you know that doesn't well, thankfully
0: this this bill wasn't that long where it took me that long but I acted as that staffer and I literally put it into a spreadsheet because I, I could not wrap my head around how like just reading it so you asked, where is this money going to? I did a lot of work on this. And speaking of cash grabs, the majority of this is going to the Department of Defense. This is $40 billion and like $20 billion or a little bit over it. Just over 50% of it um, is going specifically to the, Depart- the Department of Defense. There's like uh, $13.1 billion going to something like called the Bilateral Economic Assistance there's $5.2 billion going to the Department of State. And then everything else is in the uh, millions or hundreds of millions. Um, but as far as like percentages go, uh, it's really, really small percentages for everything else. But those are the big three um, that, that are on there. And there's this one monster line item. And it's called operations and maintenance. Uh, and it comes in at just over $15 billion. I'm going to read it for you. It's for the replacement of defense articles from the stocks of the Department of Defense and for reimbursement for defense services of the Department of Defense and military education and training provided to the government of Ukraine or to foreign countries that have provided support to Ukraine at the request of the United States. So, yeah, all those javelins and other hardware we're sending to Ukraine, they got to be replenished, so... This is what's paying for that. Um, so far, the Department of Defense has sent like 5,500 Javelins. Uh, those are the anti-tank missiles and uh, about 1,400 Stinger anti-aircraft missiles into Ukraine. And uh, according to something I read, it was, that's like one third of the total inventory of Javelin missiles and one quarter of our stockpile of Stinger missiles. And that's not—they're not cheap either. Javelin costs about $178,000 a pop. That's including the launch system and the missile. And each replacement missile, each extra round, is about $78,000. Cost of a Stinger missile is about $120,000, including the launch system and the missile. Each replacement costs about $38,000. So you can imagine these—you know—the numbers on this add up pretty quick. And with this much stock depleted. It's obvious that the U.S. isn't just going to sit around and be content with having fewer missiles. So while I may be particularly against increasing military expenditure, I'm not exactly surprised that so much of this aid package is, isn't going directly to Ukraine or like humanitarian efforts. It's going to
3: buying more weapons. We need to do a uh, comparison on the cost of like Russian items. And the cost of uh, yeah, right. U.S. items because the this bill forty billion the Russian military budget is what fifty eight billion. Uh, I think right. it's fifty eight billion. Basically, most of their entire annual budget. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like the U.S. war machine is obviously greater and larger than the Russian war machine, but um, it's just it's just crazy that some. The Russians obviously have a pretty big stockpile of weapons and, you know, they're not building them for, you know, uh, they're not building a missile for $78,000 a pop. Or maybe they are. and Maybe I'm just, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll find what out. It is. We got to look into it. But I imagine that it's just what they're building is not as expensive. But, um,
2: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times.
3: But okay, so back to this bill. There's a 13 billion billion in bilateral economic assistance. What is that? Is it outlined? What that is exactly? Yeah. So that, that's that's one of the headers of a section
0: of the bill that I'm not going to pretend to understand the meaning of. But I can tell you what was included in it to get to that number. So there was a uh, line item for international disaster assistance. It's about 4.3 billion dollars. It's one of those that's like good till it's gone. So basically we'll spend it all. And it reads, uh, to respond to humanitarian needs in Ukraine and in countries impacted by the situation in Ukraine, including the provision of emergency food and shelter and for assistance for other vulnerable populations and communities, including through local and international non-governmental organizations. So for, for this one, I think on the face of it, this one is both the most helpful for the Ukrainian people and potentially also the most controversial. You know, like, food and shelter for vulnerable populations should be priority number one, in my opinion, if we're going to be giving aid to Ukraine at all. You know, people really need this, and if we're going to be spending money at all, you know, I'm the least opposed to spending it on this in particular. But... I think the NGO part is, I think, where that's what's got like the internet conspiracies bubbling right now. You know, um, someone's got to be on the ground distributing this aid. And honestly, if it's between an NGO and the government doing it, I think I'm on the NGO side, unfortunately. Um, I can see how people will presume that it will line someone's pocket. I get it. But I just think I'm less pessimistic about it. You know, uh, one counterexample to this that I'll, that I'll willingly, you know, open up is, is just that you know, after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, there was a lot of aid that was, you know, sent over to Puerto Rico in the form of supplies, you know, um, and they, a lot of them mysteriously vanished only to later be discovered as having been hoarded by some piece of shit mayors uh, and they went to waste Like water and baby food and like, you know, all kinds of shit that was super useful. But they were just hoarding them for themselves and keeping them in shipping containers. And that was totally shitty. But what was the alternative? Like, not send any aid because some shitty mayors are probably gonna scoop some off the top? Like, I don't think that's an option. I I think there's no way to tell how this aid gets around until it gets around. And I think I'd rather try to get it to who needs it. And risk that some of it doesn't make its way to the people, then not try it all. So, if there's one thing on this bill that we should, that I'm like cool with, it's probably this one.
3: Yeah. I mean, aid always sounds nice, but a lot of times foreign aid is like, you know, we're going to build a school for these girls. And then that school ends up being like a tent in the middle of the desert, especially in, in the, and it costs, yeah. you know, $50 million. And um, it, it's just a lot of it is just, um, it mispriced and you know, it's it's overpriced and yeah. it's uh goes out to pay totally contracts and um and rich people, and that's and that's the that's the fear like the, the billions that are missing from that have been misappropriated in the Iraq war and the Afghan war. That's the reason why Rand Paul he blocked the bill because he wanted he wanted uh the bill to be. Uh, he wanted the spending to be monitored. And um Right. And I fully support that. I think that's a good idea. That, I mean that's that's the least that we could do, but it's like, no, we need to pass this out yeah. as quickly as possible and not monitor Absolutely. spending because um I mean I, I get it. Then we'll get in trouble.
0: It. <laughs> I it's it's a tricky situation, but like if there's one thing on this bill that I'm like cool with, it's probably that one. Um there's also an a much larger $8.7 billion line item for, quote, economic support fund. And that one reads, for assistance for Ukraine and countries impacted by the situation in Ukraine, including for programs to combat human trafficking, of which up to $760 million may be made available to prevent and respond to food insecurity so again like the last one if we're going to spend any money this one seems like a good thing to spend it on but i was a little bit curious about how they're just distributing this larger chunk of money in particular they they specifically call out only 760 million dollars for food insecurity now human trafficking is a problem um but i feel like they should have flipped the amounts here where more money went to food now i'm not going to pretend to understand the implications of human trafficking in Ukraine or, you know, how much we need to spend on it. That's uh, that's not my lane and I'm not going to play that route. But, you know, I have been reading a lot of articles outlining the increased risk of human trafficking in Ukraine as the war goes on. And I definitely sympathize with that. But something I just, that just doesn't sit well with me about this one line, it's that they very specifically earmark a... a relatively low amount for food insecurity and that's just something i understand tacitly and that would impact millions of people including people not even in ukraine because you know food insecurity has been a problem be- during the war in ukraine because ukraine's the breadbasket of europe right so i don't know um, it's just a little weird for me um but the last bit on this that i found a little bit unsettling was that Both of these line items under the bilateral economic assistance is directly appropriated to Joe Biden. So directly appropriated to the president, specifically. And I'm not making a political statement here. Like, regardless of who the president is, I'm not super comfortable with one person calling the shots unilaterally on how much money is spent and on what. I mean, sure, the aid hypothetically, would move faster if just one person called the shots. I I couldn't imagine like our Congress having to debate on every like nickel and dime and where it's going, but it is a lot of money and that could easily be misappropriated and not even for like nefarious reasons. It could just be like an accident.
3: My son, Hunter, maybe I'm kind of on the, he's the new director of agriculture <laughs> Ukraine. He's good <laughs> at that.
0: No, but you know what I mean, right? Like, it, it doesn't have to be, like, nefarious for it to go wrong. So maybe I'm kind of on the Rand Paul route here. Just a little bit more oversight would be useful.
3: A little more oversight. And I would have to say with a completely reconstruction re- uh, of the system that prioritizes oversight as, like, a fundamental um, contingent on providing any type of foreign assistance or aid. Um, or what are some other, uh, takeaways that you have from the bill? I'm starting to, <clears throat> my COVID, um, is, uh, COVID's acting co- up. My COVID's <laughs> acting up. So I, I can, I can only give, uh, another like 10 to 15 minutes.
0: All right, cool. Well, there's this one other big line item. And also this one is directly appropriated to the president and it's called foreign military financing program. And this one's for a total of $4 billion or just 10% of the entire package. It's massive. And it reads, For assistance for Ukraine and countries impacted by the situation in Ukraine, during fiscal years 2022 and 2023, funds made available under the heading Foreign Military Financing Program in this act and prior acts making appropriations for the Department of State, foreign operations, and related programs may be utilized by Ukraine for the procurement of defense articles, defense services, or design and construction services that are not sold by the United States government under the Arms Export Control Act. Okay, I think this is one is worth taking a few minutes to talk about. The TLDR on this one is the government gives Ukraine cash to buy whatever the hell weapons or services it wants from Basically, whomever it wants. There's a couple of like asterisks on it. It can't, you can't buy shit that's under the Arms Export Control Act. Uh, Like they can't use it to buy nukes as an example, right? Um, But uh, this is a grant. It's not lend lease, right? So it's just money that we're giving them. And we don't expect this money back at all. And so basically we're giving Zelensky a credit card and telling him to buy whatever he needs for the war. And this is not new for the US, we do this a lot, especially with countries in the Middle East and in Central Asia. And the basic idea for this is pretty simple. So rather than us figuring out what a country needs to defend itself, we let them pick it out themselves. It's like the gift card of military aid. and in, in It's better in many ways than just sending our own hardware over and just like, hey, here's a tank, right? Um, Especially in countries like Ukraine where they're more accustomed to like this old Soviet hardware. They can go out on the market and just buy the stuff that they know how to use and that they want or that they think that they need. Now we don't have to train them on shit with this money. And we also don't have to put ourselves in direct risk to ship it, train them, and troubleshoot it for them. Now of course countries often just use that money to buy our shit anyway (laughs) because they want it. Um, which just puts the money back into our economy or rather puts the money back into the military industrial complex. But in many ways, this can be no different than just, you know, giving the MIC more money in just like a roundabout way, because, you know, you know, Zelensky is just going to end up buying a bunch more javelins from us because he likes them. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think, man? What's your take on this, uh? aid package to Ukraine so far
3: I mean I think I think what I said earlier that it's a uh, you know it's 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 mainly going to accomplish the main accomplishments of this bill is going to be helping executives at Lockheed Martin purchase their vacation homes <laughs> Or further vacation homes. I I think I made a joke last episode about, you know, buying a ski house along with their beach house. I think that's going to be the main objection or the main, uh, the main uh, fallout from this is just, it's just, um, I don't, I don't think that this aid package is going to, maybe I'm completely wrong about this. And, you know, I've been wrong about a lot of stuff in this war, but I, I personally just don't think that the war is, uh, is, is this, this aid package is really going to impact the outcome of the war at the very least. I'm not saying mm. that Ukraine's going to lose, but I'm saying that I don't think that it's going to impact the, the outcome of the war. But I think that the U.S., the goal of the United States has been to keep the war going on until the Russian economy implodes. And I mean, right now the Russian economy is has not imploded and it could implode, but right now it doesn't show too many signs that it's going to implode. So, uh, there's more signs of, of European economies about to get into some real dicey areas. But, I mean, who knows? Maybe this all changes. Maybe, man. I mean,
0: I'm a bit on the fence myself about this particular bill. And, you know, we've spent hours over the last few months discussing and debating this war in particular. And obviously, I'm not going to rehash it all again. But what I will say is that I'm sympathetic to the people Of Ukraine, not its government or, you know, any of the far right crazies that fight in the Azov regiment. I do think that the people of Ukraine deserve some help. And, you know, my hot take is that, you know, after reading this, we can clearly afford it somehow, (laughs) Uh, especially after seeing so much garbage in in this bill that we're willing to spend money on. You know, if we clearly have the money somewhere, Um, where I'm having trouble is, is if we're going to spend forty billion dollars, this bill is not how I would spend it in particular. <laughs> you know, um, you know, I'd, I'd probably direct that money more towards helping Ukrainian people rather than lining the pockets of the MIC. But obviously, that's an oversimplification, and I'm not going to pretend to know the best way to spend forty billion dollars on helping people in Ukraine. I just don't feel super comfortable about the way that this bill is, is earmarked. It just feels like a lot of money going to the MIC without like a very clear cost to benefit analysis behind it, right? Not, not, I'm not seeing that very clearly. And of course, it also bugs me to see how readily we are willing to spend money on the MIC, you know, and, under the guise of helping Ukraine, you know, I kind of I, that that makes me feel uncomfortable. Um there, Like, I just feel like there's so many other things we could spend the money on, you know, including on in Ukraine in many ways. But also, there's plenty of things that we could spend the money on domestically and even internationally. We had a a pretty interesting chat in our Patreon Slack. Um, One of our Patreon members brought up the fact that, you know, the James Webb telescope costs us $10 billion and that's going to help us with such incredible science. Um, the Apollo program when it started, you know, if you adjust it for inflation costed us 11 billion dollars a year over 12 years of course. But it also employed like 400,000 people and you know looped in like 20,000 universities. So imagine what we can do with that money today. I mean, by today's standards we can probably do 13 Mars missions at like 2 billion 2.9 3 billion dollars pop
3: isn't isn't the estimate for going to mars only like two billion dollars or three billion dollars yeah
0: i mean the current mars missions that we've done so far you know with rovers is 2.9 billion dollars yeah and god knows what elon musk is (laughs) is up to on his front but you know just the costs seem like they're going down in general and we're not saying that going to mars is better than helping the people of ukraine i'm just kind of putting it into perspective you know and and I mean, think about, like, world hunger as an example. And speaking of Elon Musk specifically, the UN proposed to Elon Musk, who, like, went on Twitter to be like, hey, tell me how I can use my billions of dollars to help world hunger. Well, they gave him a proposition, and they said, hey, you can end famine for 22 million people around the world for one year at the low cost of $6 billion. At $6 billion, we could do that every year for the next seven years. So that that could even include the people of Ukraine, (laughs) right? For way cheaper. You know, we can turn this inwards, right? There's a lot of, you know, isolationists that are like, why are we, you know, throwing our money at other people? We got our own problems. I hear you. I feel that. The cheapest free plan for college in the world, uh, in the U.S., I should say, uh, would cost us about $27.8 billion dollars. And there's a, a lot of different plans and someone's going to write in the comments somewhere like, oh, that's not the cost of free education, blah, blah, blah. Just read into it. I promise. There's, there's options. Very cheap. Um, but at $25,000 a pop on the high end, we could do something else. We could say, hey, 1.6 million homes get solar panels. That's a lot of people. And that's a lot of clean energy production. If we're talking about energy in general, the largest clean fusion energy experiment, the ITER, that plant cost $22 billion. So a little over half of what we're spending on, on this bill. You, could, you can even say, hey, the part that we're spending on the military. <laughs> so we could build one of those. Or we could spend the whole $40 billion. And I bet in the next you know, couple of years, maybe less than a decade, we could probably get fusion up and running. And that could make limitless clean energy. And that would be very useful for the whole world. Not to mention it would make us incredibly powerful as a nation to have fusion energy. And that's just what I was able to Google in 15 minutes, right? Like there's probably a million things that you can do with... There's at least 40 billion things that you can do with $40 billion, right? Um, So yeah, man, I mean, I'm not saying no or or you, or you pain don't pain have to do anything help, with 40, it's just like
3: or or in my my opinion you don't do anything with the 40 billion dollars and you don't just you know you don't pretend like the 40 billion dollars just came out of nowhere from a leprechaun's chest it's it's 40 billion dollars <laughs> I mean, that taxpayers are paying or through inflation so i mean
2: that, that's, an that, that's my
3: option is just stop the, the reckless spending in general and you know now it's like a debate oh it's it's only for you know 40 billion dollars to ukraine Well, think about we can use that forty billion dollars for this project or that project. You know, my my opinion is is uh, or or where I come from is this: let's just not spend the forty billion dollars because we don't have it. I mean, yeah, that's that's obviously
0: another another option to go with as well. Another hot take. Yeah. Um, Okay, that's that's obvious, but like, look, I get it. Uh, You know, Ukraine needs some help. I just wish we would help them in better ways. I don't know what those ways are in particular. I'm not like an expert in this way, but I do know that this current bill doesn't sound great in yeah. my opinion, because I feel like it's just giving money to Lockheed Martin and that's it.
3: I I agree with you. Um, So I had another segment, but I don't, it's going to take too long to go over right now. So <laughs> maybe we'll save it. Okay. But it was more about sure. just about the current, situation in in, uh, Ukraine right now in the war effort. But I read an article um, from Lieutenant Colonel uh, Danny Davis, which I'll post, which is really good. I wanted to go over this, but um, it's getting late right now. So I'll leave this article if any of you all are interested in it. And then um, anything else you want to add to this episode? No, man. Okay. all right. thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Bro History, thank you for bearing with me today. I do appreciate it. And, um, yeah, we'll see you next week. We are. I will be in Puerto Rico, so I'll be doing an episode live with Danny, not over the Internet, and it uh, should be really fun. I think we're going to be doing the Spanish-American War, some classic history stuff in honor of being in Puerto Rico. And, uh, yeah, we're excited to do it. So if you want to support the show, rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. You can also join us on our Patreon and get access to our Slack account. All right, everyone. Peace. Peace.